in some ways I'm feeling hopeful that there are more people who are more often in their day in the privileged position of not having to feel the disorientation of what it means to constantly be working remotely, quote unquote, or away from a work site, that they can now relate to what that feels like. So I'm hopeful that in these somewhat mundane ways that there are more people in privileged positions who can relate to what it feels like to do ghost work, to be under the press of ghost work conditions. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the Innovation for All podcast, where it's my job to speak with innovators and technologists on issues of social impact and diversity. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. Today's guest is Mary Gray. Mary is a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research and an author of Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. Mary studies how technology access, material conditions, and everyday uses of tech transform people's lives. Her most recent book, Ghost Work, co-authored with computer scientist Siddharth Suri, explores the lives of people who are paid to train artificial intelligence and increasingly serve as, quote-unquote, humans in the loop, delivering on-demand information services. This is a fascinating conversation. Many years ago, I was excited about the idea of having basically contract work, not working for sort of the man, but being able to choose your own hours and finding work through these gig-based platforms like Upwork or maybe something like an Uber. Mary's book, Ghost Work, reveals the darker side of all that. What does it look like when someone is spending hours moderating content for a company like a Facebook? Do we value that work? She brings to light an entire class of workers who work through tech-enabled platforms, performing these modular tasks for large companies, earning very, very little, in many cases being completely invisible. You know, I just assumed that my Google search results were populated by Google algorithm, but it turns out there are people behind that work and they're not paid super duper well. So we talk about what this sort of ghost work looks like, what is maybe bad about it, would have to change for it to be a more valued part of our workforce. We also talk about the responsibilities of tech platforms to provide services for a diverse audience of consumers. And lastly, we keep it to the very end so that you don't have to listen to it if you don't want to, but because the nature of COVID-19 has changed a lot for a lot of people, we also talk about whether it's changed our thinking on ghost work and ways that we can maybe have more human-centered solutions when we think about how we solve all this going forward. Is there such a thing as human-centered contact tracing, for instance? So the first half of the conversation focuses pretty narrowly on ghost work, what it is, companies that perpetuate it, what the downsides and maybe benefits are of it. And then we roll into a sort of broader conversation. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Mary Gray. Mary Gray, welcome to Innovation for All. Thank you for having me. How did you first come across this concept of ghost work? And of course, I would love us to define that as well. My co-author, Siddharth Suri, and I came up with that term as we were trying to work through just the myriad names that people attach to, you can call it 
on-demand work, share economy, peer economies, you name it. There's click work. There's so many different descriptors of what it means to do the kind of work we were studying. So we use that term specifically to talk about the work conditions, the kind of task project-based world that's spinning up mostly through this mechanism that lets employers, enterprises, businesses of all kinds take a task and source, schedule, manage, ship, and bill the task through a mix of application programming interfaces and the internet to someone waiting on the other end who's signed up to pick up that project or task. And if we orient to work this kind of on-demand mechanism for distributing projects and tasks as a form of economic activity, you quickly realize that there are conditions on uh, situations where businesses are not coming clean on how much people in the loop are really the, the value proposition behind what it is they're offering. So you, you as an end consumer might have no idea that your search engine experience or the content on your social media feed or even grammar check in your word processing software had a person perfect what was offered to you. Or if you're doing text-based customer service, you might have no idea when you're moving between the automated service, the natural language processing that gives you a string of words, and a person. Yeah, so for somebody who's non-technical, so that sounds a little bit conceptual to me, what are some examples of what this might actually look like? It's something that someone might be interacting with, maybe on the worker side. Yeah, and I mean, so let me try that again. So with you know, calling it, Ghost work was specifically to call out when do we erase or devalue the value of the person, the contribution of the person who's bringing a moment of insight or snap judgment to a deliverable, to a service or a product. So a good example of that is content moderation. I think two years ago, if I had said to anyone, content moderation is actually a job done by a person, they wouldn't have been able to recognize the string of words I just said. They wouldn't have, what exactly is content moderation? What that looks like is any company that has end users generating content on their site, whether that's an Amazon book review or uh, Twitter cascading with all of our tweets, it has a need of looking at any kind of content that's been flagged either by another user by another person or, or by its own mechanisms for monitoring content to be able to look at that content and literally make in-the-moment decision, is this content that's allowed per our terms of service on this site or is this something that should be removed? Many of us assume that there's technology out there that can instantly recognize the bad stuff and take it down. It takes a group of people often distributed around the world in real time in occasions where you're looking at a very dynamic set of terms to be able to look at terms that are signaled or flagged and say, oh, that's actually a use of hate speech. That's not a term of affection. It should be removed. It's such a statement on how many moments in our media-filled lives are really complicated bits of information that require a person looking at the material coming up in front of them on their screen and deciding to click, no, that's not adult content. You can keep it up. 
Can you go through some other examples? Because I think that's a great one. And I, I have a bunch of follow-up questions. And I think the more examples we have, the more sense they'll make. Yeah. So we studied four different businesses, four different platforms that put tasks and projects out to groups of people to pick up. And the cases we're probably most familiar with that have come to our public attention are Amazon Mechanical Turk and the content moderation I just described that's performed by any large social media company. Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is owned by Amazon.com, invented this system of being able to issue projects and tasks like labeling an image and looking at a set of a collection of different images and distinguishing, is that a cat? Is that a mountain lion? Is that a goat? And being able to have a person put a label to that image, and then that can be used to train artificial intelligence to start recognizing any image that has literally that geometry. It is nothing more than mathematics. It's looking at an image. All a computer algorithm can do is look at an image, have a sense of the shape of that image, literally the pixels that account for different angles of shadows on the image. And then a person is attaching a label to that image. That is called data labeling. That's a really, really common task for anything that involves training artificial intelligence to quote-unquote see an image or to recognize a word and the words that might be associated with it. It still takes a person to see an image if it's something that isn't otherwise labeled. So that's a really good example. The other kinds of projects and tasks that are flowing on Amazon Mechanical Turk are surveys, marketing surveys, or requests to generate a set of terms that you associate with an image to produce materials that are much less about identifying an image and much more about getting what are the things you as a person might associate with a picture of a rainbow. So for marketing companies to try and figure out, well, what will be an image and a set of terms that will really resonate with the average consumer? They can ask the average consumer on any of these platforms that have signed up to basically be the focus group, if you will, for this widely distributed market survey. So those are a couple of examples. For a company like Microsoft and any large tech company that has a search engine or has other kinds of services that need to respond to text queries that a person might generate, a sentence that you're asking a question to a system, you need people to be able to look at, well, what websites come up when you use that set of search terms? And they evaluate, individuals will evaluate, how does that website that might be about a presidential candidate named Barack Obama, how does that connect to this other set of websites that are being generated and linked to that name? So it's a really interesting case of, in most cases, somebody who's trying to refine a search query so that when you enter the term Barack Obama, it'll bring up our past president, his history as a senator of Illinois, that at some point, someone has made sure that the websites that embed Barack Obama's name in them are not hate sites. 
that have connected his name to their site that's defaming him. There's no way for a computer to automatically be able to tell the difference between, you know, a hate site and a site vetted reliable information. It takes getting a person, and really it's a group of people, so I want to be really specific about that, getting as many people as you can to literally weigh in on which search result is more accurate, which search result is inaccurate or misinformation. That takes a person to do that kind of refinement. And this system, it's called human computation, the system that lets you source, schedule, manage, ship, and bill any project or task, means you can send out this question to hundreds of people. And if 90% of them say, this website is just a hate site, you know fairly quickly and cheaply that you should move that site down or off of your search engine. The other two businesses we studied, just to get some other examples on the table, one is called Lead Genius. It's a social startup that when you scrape the internet, scrape the web, and you're trying to get sales leads for someone at a company who needs to find the person at another company to sell them, you know, the air conditioners they have to sell or the paper products they have to sell, you don't want to call the CEO of that company. You want to call the person who's in charge of buying the copy paper or buying the air conditioner. So Lead Genius came up with the really smart business model of scraping as many contacts as they could from the web for any company that hires them who's looking for sales lead generation, and then handing over the task of refining that list to the really good leads, so you're calling the right person at the company, to a team of people. And that team of people then can go through the list of possible sales leads and refine that list and then hand it back to the client that's hired lead genius. So a fantastic business-to-business model that takes the best of what you can get out of the internet and matches it with the really unique, distinct qualities of humans to be able to sort through the trash and find the gems and be able to hand over really good sales leads, for example. These are really great, crystal clear examples of what the business side looks like. And can you give a little bit more context to what it looks like for a ghost worker? If I'm someone doing this kind of work, what does my my day or my work session look like? Yeah, for many of the workers that we interviewed and we observed, their day is punctuated by these intense scrambles for looking for tasks, depending on how many platforms they were signed up on The site might be much clearer about when they have tasks available. Most of the sites do not create alert systems. So it's really what we call a hypervigilance sets in where workers are the ones who have to prepare to log on across several different platforms and look for work, look for the kind of work that they might do. Many of them, when they're sitting down to their desktops or their laptops, they've got endless number of tabs open on their web browser that might, will definitely include whatever dashboard the on-demand company delivering this kind of information service work, what they offer. So you're keeping track of where you're picking up tasks, what kind of money is attached to those tasks, whether you've been paid. And then all the projects themselves, they'll have web engines, search engines open depending on the tasks they're performing. 
Alongside of that, most of them who are most active also have discussion forums up. So they're constantly checking in with each other in these small communities that they've formed to be able to talk about the work they're doing. How would I get more efficient with the number of images that I have to tag? Does anybody have advice on where I might find a time scheduler to help me manage my time differently. So many of them will spend time in these different forums to pick up tips and get advice on the people who are hiring them to get insight on who's a good client to work with or for. So their day is, it may be punctuated, but it's often long. Most of the workers we talked with were working, if they were part of what we called this group of always-on workers, they were spending 40 to 60 hours a week easily and often to the tempo of of the West Coast or to the UK that were producing much of this kind of information service work so that depending on what part of the world they live in, they might be logging on at 5 a.m. in the morning their time to pick up tasks elsewhere in the world, stay on for a few hours, doing as many tasks as they could And then logging off, being able to take care of the other needs they have in their lives and repeating that cycle throughout the day, depending on what their own schedules, their own constraints on their time might require. One of the things I think is so interesting and and challenging about all this is the sort of the promise of technology versus the peril of that reality. So what you just described on the one hand sounds terrible, right? Sounds awful. But on the other hand, that could be billed as flexibility. You can do a few hours of work in the morning. You're not beholden to a single company. You can go, you know, check on your kids in the middle of the day and then go back to work when it suits you. You can pick up some extra work if you have an unusual set of circumstances at your regular job. Where do you feel like this breaks down? Yeah, that's such a great way to put it too, because I think in many ways we're looking at workers who could not make full-time employment work for them, or there are not enough full-time employment opportunities available to them to make ends meet. So I think it's really important for this to be put in context that we're talking about the reality of most working people's lives. The jobs that are available to them are service sector jobs. If they're lucky to be able to access wage work, That is overwhelmingly true across the globe, and I think sometimes it's hard for anybody who sits in a salaried full-time situation to appreciate. I think maybe today we can appreciate that more than ever, that many people are often working on contract that has a finite amount of time in which you're charged to do a project or a task. And after that, you need to move on to your next project or task. So we're looking at a world that's accelerating that trend within information service economies, but really as a way of organizing employment. We often will talk about ghost work is not about a specific niche job. We're looking at the dismantlement of full-time employment through disaggregating our day job into tasks and projects. So for some people, the reality is this means they can access income that they otherwise would have to figure out or would literally just have to forego a job opportunity because of child care or elder care responsibilities, because of discrimination in the workplace, because of their own interests in pursuing other 
jobs or career paths or joys that to them are as important as their economic livelihood. Let me give you a concrete example. So one of the workers we talk about, Camilla, worked on one of the other platforms we studied, Amara, which is a captioning and video translation site. She loved working on Amara precisely because what she wanted to do with most of her day was dance choreography. That for her was the place where she felt she had gifts to offer, talents to offer, and she did not want to turn that into her only source of income precisely because the amount of energy to make that her only source of income meant she would probably have to compromise on the projects she took on. So working on Amara was an additional revenue stream for her so that she could balance the load, teach classes, teach dance to the students she wanted to teach, and also keep her own choreography work going for her own creative needs. And so for her, this works. What makes it fall apart are the realities that we have no safety net or social contract built to be able to support somebody like Camilla. And we could say, well, and often the economic models suggest Carmela's just taking a risk and she should pay for that risk. I think what we need to grapple with is that most people working on contract, particularly in the service sector, most people who are picking up projects and tasks are not doing it because they are joyfully choosing to do it. It's because there are so few options that accommodate the other constraints on their time. And to your point about risk, when we think about risk and investing, there's an assumption that if you're taking more risk, the payoff should be better, greater, right? But in this case, that's not the case, right? The people who complete these kinds of tasks are actually earning less. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to bring it home to there's so much of a growing industry of telehealth. So just think about the industries that apply this mechanism of sourcing, scheduling, managing, shipping, and billing labor. When you apply that to something like healthcare, which is a growing sector, most of us would concede it's a service sector we all deeply value. It's really devalued in terms of economic return if you enter that world. So if you're a home health aide taking care of an elder, you're not paid well. You're paid poorly, in fact. And at the same time, we all recognize how valuable and in some ways how critical that service role is to anybody who's relying on that home health care worker to take care of their parent if they are in the workforce full time. So it's kind of grappling with this interdependency that we have on service work and people not just being available in the moment to us, but being on demand available to us tomorrow that we are deeply undervaluing and not recognizing that the conditions we're building up, they're unsustainable for someone who is providing such a critical service to us as individuals. And we globally haven't really fully accepted that these are precisely the jobs that are the most difficult to automate. These are literally the last mile of automation. They are not the places where robots can take over, like in manufacturing, 
where you can literally rebuild a factory floor, put robotic systems, automated systems on them, and get much of the work done because they're, they're churning out a product. When you move into this other world of tending to people, listening to people, responding to people's needs dynamically, making those snap judgments, you're entering this world that will be very difficult, and I would argue impossible, to automate to the degree that we need it to serve a human need, that we will need a human in the loop for the foreseeable future. And so, as you said earlier, usually we think of that person who's taking a risk on branching out and doing a project or task-based form of employment. We might think lawyers, we might think creatives, we might think doctors' practices. We're talking about individuals, many individuals, who are fulfilling a service, meeting a need, and they are literally absorbing all of the risk. I want to call out a couple of the components that make something ghost work, and then maybe we can unpack kind of where to go from here. What would what would the good version of this look like if there is one? So in terms of ghost work, there's this invisibility, right? It's people's yeah. work hidden behind technology. They have a lack of benefits. There's no social safety net. Their wages are probably low. The nature of the work itself might be very challenging, you know, to do content moderation, to check if, you know, there are swear words or racial slurs or look at violent images. Like that's the nature of the work itself there is very challenging. And then you also have this issue of scale of if I'm hiring someone to label words, you know, I have this pool of 10,000 people to pull from and suddenly any individual person doesn't seem maybe so important or relevant and they feel very, very replaceable. Is there anything else about the characteristics of ghost work that I'm missing there? No, except I want to underscore the first point you made, which are those places where we are so distracted by the shiny object that we're sold, the technology, that we really can't imagine how important the people folded into that process of providing us a service, how important, how absolutely necessary they are. When I think about, and I had um, Julia Ticona on the podcast recently, and she does work on sort of the gendered nature of gig economy platforms. And one of the questions I had for her is, sort of, does this have to be bad? Is there a good version of this? When I first heard about platforms like Upwork several years ago, this idea of being free from a boss, being able to control your time, and even more so, the idea of it being task-based, for me, was very appealing. Like, I can complete work really quickly. I can be more efficient. Um, I don't need someone, you know, leering over to me to make sure I'm plugging in my eight hours. I can just do the work quickly and efficiently and hand it off and either work fewer hours or be more efficient and do extra work. To me, it sounded really glorious several years ago. Where did we go wrong and and what would the future of this look like being done in maybe a more ethical way? Yeah. I think where we went wrong was not realizing how much we all benefit from people being able to have three things. And really there were three things that across the board the workers we studied were looking for, were chasing. It was controlling their time, controlling the projects they they worked on, and controlling who they worked with. So those three elements that often are what human resources scholars point to as what often underwrites job happiness. There are things that when you're salaried and a 
you've arrived at your, you know, professional peak, you have those things. You're able to choose when you work. You're able to choose what you work on. You're able to make choices about who you work with. It turns out that putting those pieces into everybody's work life vastly improves the output of everyone involved. And that means not just achieving and an individual profiting from that way of organizing work, but literally everyone there around, all of the teams they're connected to benefit. We failed in recognizing that that was more valuable than controlling when a worker works, controlling and telling them what to work on because we assumed as a boss that we knew best. And in interesting ways, imagining that collaboration was somewhat incidental to output. So if we want to really take on the possibility here of what could be incredibly satisfying, productive orientations to work, to employment, not specific jobs, but literally an orientation to employment, we could seriously take on In many cases, firms, businesses are benefiting from drawing on a pool of people who are available to them in the moment to provide often a service or an experience that much of our consumer society is driven by businesses constantly refining, retooling what it is they have to deliver a customer. And it's rarely a product alone. It's often an experience and healthcare again is a really good one. Like healthcare constantly reinvents itself by what does it have to offer a person, not just in terms of the product, but the experience of support <laughs> of being cared for, right? So if we think about businesses are constantly benefiting from being able to pull from this pool, we call that a commons of workers who are not staying in that firm for the next 20 years. They are literally moving, individuals are moving from firm to firm to firm every few years, sometimes more often than that. But on average, workers do not stay with the same company. That means every company has a vested interest in cost-sharing the underwriting of that pool. So we no longer need to be, particularly in the United States, fixated on It's an employer's responsibility to cover these benefits for the set of workers they've employed because they retain and kind of possessively invest in those workers. It's much more accurate to say, we have a lot of people feeding the needs of businesses that feed the needs of consumers. We're always going to have this mix of full-time employees and people on contract, but history is pretty clear. The business record is quite transparent, that we've moved to contract-driven employment for a range of reasons, but we've, we're there. There's no walking back to everybody working for the same company for, for their entire careers. So knowing that, knowing that, we could really be looking at a different model of cost-sharing that says every working adult who's participating in our economy is going to need a set of things to be able to do their best, to give their most. And who should pay for that is the resounding question. It is the defining question of our time. 
So this is sort of decoupling benefits from the full-time employer and either having all the businesses chip in or having the taxpayers chip in, that we should decouple these important benefits from, quote-unquote, full-time work. Exactly. Because for the most part, we put those benefits in place. The market didn't put them in place. Social policies put these in place precisely to be able to incent toward full-time employment, to incent businesses to retain their full-time employees and retain and to incent workers to stay put. That works wonderfully in a manufacturing model. It creates a lot of stability. It creates a lot of consistency for all parties. It stabilizes supply chains. It makes no sense in a world where you're constantly changing the service that's offered, where the business literally needs to ebb and flow with consumer demand. And right now, we're treating workers as though they should absorb the cost of doing business, when in fact, businesses and citizens and consumers should be sharing the costs because they also share in the benefits, right? So we could go back to economic models of supply and demand. And the thing we're missing is an economic model that knows how to value the abundance of people's availability. So we usually think of, I'm going back to something you said earlier, we usually think of having scores of people who can do a particular kind of work as redundant. And if anybody can do it, then clearly it shouldn't really fetch much of a wage. That logic doesn't hold in on-demand labor markets. And let me give you an illustration of that. So if you think about ride-hailing, and probably many of your listeners can imagine an app that allows you to call a, a ride to take you to the airport. The value of that app is not just that it brings somebody to your home to take you to the airport. The value of that app is also that you can open that app and you can see 20 cars hovering around your neighborhood who could pick you up in five minutes so that you can literally go back to what you were doing, finish saying goodbye to your loved ones, go grab the shirt you forgot to put in your suitcase, and open the app and see approximately the same number of cars available about the same amount of time. Compare that to, would you want a company that you open up the app and it shows you four cars that might be available in 20 minutes? Consumers are pretty clear on which of those two they would pick. And what we need to be much clearer on is, how do you pay for that? How do we pay for that abundance of people being available to us when we need them? Because one person through full-time employment cannot fulfill taking care of the needs of another person. You need a team. In every service industry, it is a team of people who provide service to consumers. It's equipping us to literally value the contributions of many individuals that are being aggregated. Their effort is being aggregated. And literally to the end consumer, you can't tell the difference between the person who picked you up five minutes ago and who might pick you up tomorrow. What you do get is reliable service. One of the themes I've explored a lot on the show is this idea of who sort of the diversity or lack of diversity of people working in tech influencing how tech ultimately works. And one of the things that has come to light is this idea that 
let's say, facial recognition technologies, for instance, don't work as well with non-white or non-Asian faces, right? Yeah. And some early training data may have been oversampling white faces. If you're, you know, a white team or an Asian team, you're testing that in your own group first and foremost. And so I've come to think of that as a problem that needs to be solved and thinking that one, we need to make sure we have more diversity in the tech workforce itself, but that we need to make explicit steps to close those data gaps to make sure that products work well for everybody. So that's sort of the background. That's my thinking initially. Any response so far, I guess? <laughs> yeah, no, no. And I, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because in many ways, I think we do think of it as a gap. And I think I want to challenge us all to imagine we're always going to have those gaps. It's really reckoning with how both uncomfortable it is and how open-ended, ongoing, and iterative our designs need to be. That we literally need to be constantly asking ourselves, who are we missing? Who are we missing? Who are we missing? And that's a design challenge. It's an engineering challenge that we literally have just started to take on, mostly because computer scientists and engineers are not trained to see the world as diverse. They're literally trained to abstract it out. So I love that you're bringing this up because absolutely in, in many cases it is filling a gap, <laughs> but you could say it's more about minding it, like literally being mindful of the gaps we produce when we put something out in the world. We are working often with a set of assumptions. And to me, the I am with you, the, the challenge before us is how are we going to approach engineering technologies as an invitation to say, who are our stakeholders? What problem are we trying to solve? And who has the domain expertise I need as a person building something to inform what I do next? Well, and I like that framing of minding the gap rather than closing the gap. Because where I was going with all of this is my historical thinking has been, oh, okay, well, if we have this data gap, let's close it. So Google got in trouble last year for, I would say, trying to do just that and executing it very poorly. So there was a a big scandal where they hired a firm, I think in Atlanta, to capture essentially more facial data of black faces. So what that effectively means is getting more pictures of black faces. And I think it was executed really poorly in that they had this third party taking the photos. And what ended up happening was because black people in that part of the country have lots of historical injustices against them, the populations that they ended up getting this data from were a more vulnerable population. So it's taking photos from homeless people. And it was also maybe not clear that they were communicating what this data was for. And then finally, they were paid very little. So I I might be wrong, but I think it was on the order of 5 or $10. So they're getting paid this very small amount. This is getting back to ghost work for what is essentially really important data that's going to be leveraged by this giant company. So at the beginning of this, I was thinking, like, this is actually a really good thing. We want this technology to work really well for everybody, including people of color. But the way that it was executed was so mishandled that it became a scandal that made it look like it was taking advantage of Black people in this area. I'm just wondering if you have any thought on all of that. Yeah, so this is actually my other area of research, is thinking about this intersection of building technologies that have deep connections and interactions with society. And I I actually chair our internal 
ethics review program, which is the equivalent of an institutional review board at a university. And my argument to my colleagues is that we are now in a world in which we're not building closed systems. We are interacting with people and society. And particularly for scientific inquiry, and I think this is what's fascinating, is that at the end of the day, when we're building technologies, whether it's facial recognition or a social media platform, as trying to evaluate what kinds of content would you like to see, we are building services that effectively have to be constantly running an experiment, constantly changing your environment to be able to see what reactions are produced by those changes. Sometimes they're completely innocuous changes. I move a design element from left to right of your screen to figure out which one's more legible to you. But the example you gave, facial recognition, is a a good one because before we ever build something, if we train ourselves to say, I'm going to be interacting with people from the very beginning, from the moment I'm designing this to the moment it's ever deployed. So what are my responsibilities? And I'm trained as an anthropologist. In my case, I can't learn anything from people if they don't understand why I'm asking them the questions I'm asking them. Not so much because I won't get an answer the first come around, but I actually need to go back to them (laughs) and learn more about them. I have to be in their lives over time. So it involves, for very good historical reasons, a gesture of transparency, of respect. The other tenets of doing work with people, the three tenets of the principles of doing work with people are respect, beneficence, and justice. Respect is a gesture of recognizing everybody's human right to autonomy to decide whether or not they do something. And that you're clear in your ask of somebody, if you want their time, if you want to learn from them, that they understand why. So your example of facial recognition is a good one. To initiate those moments with, this is what I'm trying to achieve. Would you help me? And make it as easy for them to say no as possible. Justice. The sad thing about justice is that it is meant to address horrific practices within science, biomedical sciences particularly, that took advantage of easy access to vulnerable populations. So whether we're talking about the Tuskegee syphilis experiments or the Willowbrook experiments in the Willowbrook home in New York City that developed hepatitis B and hepatitis C vaccines by feeding children live virus, or any of the other egregious moments that seem so obviously unethical now that happened at a moment when we hadn't really taken fully in what are the higher obligations of scientists. It's to serve society, not the greater good, but literally to respect the rights of our society's members to be given full notification of what's going on, an opportunity to turn away, and to benefit from what's created. So justice was literally this recognition that science could no longer draw from those who couldn't escape their grips, that you you had to have effectively diverse and inclusive sampling 
so that the benefits and the risks of science would be equally distributed. And then last one, beneficence, is to that question of benefit. Who benefits from what you create? In biomedical sciences, it's pretty clear you're hoping it'll benefit all people. And as soon as you start moving in the direction of creating something that benefits some people, you are literally moving into that for the medical field, what is unethical. It's moving away from the purpose of health and medicine. The same holds for the social sciences. So I think to me, engineering, computer science is much closer to the world of social sciences now because it it cannot develop what it has to offer the world without these fairly ongoing interactions with people in society. And I would say that means that we should, as citizens, as consumers, be holding technology companies that build services and products that we're interacting with, that build the social environments that we move through every day, that we should be holding them to the same kinds of expectations that we hold scientists who learn from people every day, that we be given the opportunity to consent, not just notification, but literally a moment to say, no, I don't want you to collect that from me. And that they're required, expected to address the diversity of humankind, not just think about a narrow set of people who might benefit. And certainly shouldn't be able to walk away from thinking this will be in certain people's hands. What are they going to do with it? What can they do? And then that last principle of beneficence, that it it really is a, a moment where we need to take to heart that anybody building something has to have domain expertise to understand the risks and the benefits of what they're creating. Thank you for that. And I want to go ahead and change gears a little bit. So we're recording this in the end of April 2020. COVID-19, a pandemic has taken over the world and everybody's lives have been changed either dramatically or even lost in many cases and possibly in more mundane ways like not being able to go to your favorite restaurant, et cetera. So I have a couple questions for you. I just wanted to know, has this changed or expanded your thinking on ghost work in any way? You know, the impact of this pandemic, I think more than I expected, made me more resolved about what we need to fix. And in some ways, I'm feeling hopeful that there are more people who are more often in their day in the privileged position of not having to feel the disorientation of what it means to constantly be working remotely quote unquote, or away from a work site, that they can now relate to what that feels like. So I'm hopeful that in these somewhat mundane ways that there are more people in privileged positions who can relate to what it feels like to do ghost work, to be under the press of ghost work conditions. And then I also think we're in a moment where we're going to see the rise of the importance of people doing ghost work, whether it's the person who's now dropping off food and it's even more touchless than it ever was, that we are going to have to reckon with how much we value and depend on those people. Yeah, I agree. There's this real disconnect right now of calling these people essential workers, but at the same time, knowing that they're mostly low-wage workers and we're sort of comfortable with that. So they're taking on these extra risks without usually hazard pay. Yeah, I mean, to our earlier conversation, without any of the reward. And it really, this pandemic, for me, I've been calling it a moment of reckoning 
we have an opportunity to fully take in how much we depend on those who provide services to us and how much we benefit as species from relying on each other and what it looks like when you cannot rely on someone, how much our fates are connected. If somebody is bringing groceries to you right now, if you're listening in April 2020, you know that their health is paramount to your own health. For us to really take in the truth of that and then say, okay, so what is the social safety net? What is the economic system we need to have in place to truly recognize that value? Because it's it's not the pandemic that's created that value. It's the pandemic that's shown us that value that was there all along. Now that we're looking towards a future where we can hopefully, quote unquote, get back to normal, there's a lot of discussion over what that process would look like. And one concept that's risen to the top has been this idea of contact tracing. Can you say a little bit about what that is and how we need to make sure that that's done in a human-centered way? Yeah, I mean, contact tracing is in so many ways the quintessential ghost work task. So back in the 90s, I actually used to do community surveying for an HIV-AIDS organization called the Stop AIDS Project in San Francisco. When you're talking with somebody about possible exposure to a life-threatening disease, whether it's HIV or COVID-19, you're talking with somebody about something that's scary and can be stigmatizing. And particularly if you're talking with somebody who's part of a vulnerable population, you're literally talking with somebody who might be sharing health information that puts them at greater risk A contact tracer's main job is not just to identify who's been exposed to a disease like COVID-19. It is to talk that person through the risks that they're going to experience by notifying others in their circles that they may be exposed to this disease. So contact tracing traditionally in epidemiology, it really depends on a person who builds trust, not just in that one conversation, but as the person or team of people who collectively are going to be constantly checking in on you as someone exposed to a contagious virus. So our ability to fight COVID-19 is really going to hinge on building up teams of people who are there in our lives routinely checking on us until there's reliably a vaccine available around the globe. That means that they need technologies that support their work to communicate with us and to build trust. And it's somewhat ironic that right now the tech offering is mostly a focus on privacy. Like how could we create apps that would allow us to share our health information anonymously? Nobody will know who we are, but that we could send out a signal that we might be infected. That could be part of the answer, but it's really clear that where we're going to need to turn is to the value of human workers who are going to be contacting us throughout the presence of this pandemic, who are checking on us, and when, not if, it becomes necessary, helping somebody who has everything to lose, think an undocumented worker, think someone who is taking care of many people in their household, convincing them that they should 
leave those settings where they feel safest and go to an isolation ward because that could be the healthiest thing they do for them and the people around them. That's going to take a great deal of trust and care. And as we write about, I write with my co-authors, Barbara Gross and Margaret Bordeaux, contact tracing is very much about that human exchange, and there's no app for that. I'm going to say that sounds really hard, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard, and it's very doable. We have such evidence, all of history of the application of contact tracing, it works. And it works precisely because you turn to the people in your community you trust, your aunties, your grandmothers, the people you respect, and you ask them to help facilitate that trust. Before I turn to our last round of questions, do you have an ask for the audience? Oh, I do. I really want them to think about the people in their lives that they depend on, the people who they know have helped them succeed, and imagine what it would look like to know that they have the support that they need in their lives to keep contributing to you. Like, I I want everybody to hold on to what that looks like and to see that supporting someone else is one of the most self-interested acts (laughs) that you can perform because it's going to come back and you're going to benefit from it. Amen. (laughs) Well, and with that, I'd like to turn to our Think a Little Different round. What's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? What's changed is that I have an even deeper conviction about the capacity for people to care for each other. I don't know that I really thought it could get deeper, but I had these moments during field work caring about workers who have really very few resources who would rally to send each other birthday cards and money to buy replacement laptops so they could keep doing their work. And those are just moments where I'm, you know, my sense of what we can do for each other I don't know that it changed. It just deepened. So given your knowledge about how most of the, I would say, tech world actually works, it doesn't have to be in that context, but do you have any odd habits that maybe embody your worldview? Yeah, I think the habit I have is that I, for better and for worse, thank just about anybody that comes into my life. And the the example that comes to mind is if I'm in a hotel when I'm leaving gratuity for the person who's going to clean the room, I write a thank you note. One of the goals of the show is to suss out sort of the diversity of ideas, even within a small field. So with that in mind, is there a view that's widely held by your peers that you just aren't totally convinced by or you disagree with? I have probably a disagreement every day with colleagues who believe that tech can fix social problems. I was going to say your example on human-centered contact (laughs) tracing was very much like, let's have people do the work. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, my co-author and I used to debate constantly, like, what are the technical hard limits of artificial intelligence? And I'm, as a humanist, convinced that we will not be able to solve, technically, we will not be able to replace the human capacity for creativity and spontaneity. I just find that technically a hard stop, mostly because we know what you can compute. It's when you have a clear yes or no. And I don't think there's anything clear or yes or no about the human condition and our need for responsiveness. So on Innovation for All, we focus on this intersection between business or technology and diversity, inclusion, or social impact issues. 
Who are two people that you think would be interesting to have on the podcast? Right now, Barbara Gross. <laughs> She's the godmother of AI. Uh, that's what Margaret Bordeaux Coder called her. And she was really one of the earliest thinkers in systems in artificial intelligence to grapple with the reality that much of what we do is not really an individual achievement. It's this collaborative, what they call multi-agent system <laughs> learning process. So she would be a fascinating person to have on this show. And so this um, Mark Sendek, he's a doctor who's at the Duke Medical Center. And he and his team, it was an interdisciplinary team, a couple of years ago, they built an app for monitoring sepsis, which is a big problem in hospitals. And his novel approach was to say, this isn't really a problem of finding the bad, often nurses is what they were thinking. It's a matter of building a mechanism that helps nurses collaborate. And I think he's one of the smartest thinkers that's approaching health problems. And he's working on a project. We're collaborating on something about contact tracing. He's so aware that in most cases, the challenge is supporting somebody doing their work in healthcare. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more? You can go to www.ghostwork.info to find out more about Ghostwork and the book that I co-authored with Sadara Suri. And you can find out more about me at marylgray.org. I'll add that Mary has a fascinating and lively Twitter as well. What, what is your Twitter handle again? It's Mary L. Gray, G-R-A-Y. Mary Gray, author of Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Do you support having more diversity of ideas in business? I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Rachel Shea, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com. All words, no numbers. And in case you didn't know, we're on social. Feel free to tweet us at InForAllPodcast, all words, no numbers, on your favorite social platform.